Psalm 64 uh, is a reminder, as we were just singing, that the soul that leans on Jesus for repose, God will never forsake to his foes. And we want to read uh, David's cry and David's confidence in the Lord here in Psalm 64. It's entitled for the choir director, a Psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot. For the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded, so they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake the head. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God and will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in him. And all the upright in heart will glory. Father, we pray that by the time we finish tonight at verse 10, that uh, we will glory in you, that we will rejoice in your provision, your protection, your goodness. So speak to us now. Show us your power. Show us your kindness. Show us the goodness of the good news that you have toward us and for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, I think you can see here in this psalm, we find David in a familiar place. David seems in the psalms almost always to be in some sort of trouble. Now, just off the top, that should rid us of any sort of romantic notions that if we're really blessed by God as David was, then that'll mean a life of peace and quiet and smooth sailing. That's just not the case, is it? And so people who teach that, the purveyors of the prosperity gospel, should mull the psalms a little bit. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet David seems always to have been in difficulty. And here we find him in difficulty. Again, you see it in the first two verses. He's voicing a complaint, verse 1. Then at the end of the verse, he is worried about the dread of the enemy. He's facing evildoers in verse 2 who are causing a tumult for him in their iniquity. So as has been the case in several of these recent psalms, David is in trouble. And as has been the case in some of those psalms, David doesn't say here exactly when these problems came about or exactly who the troublemakers were or exactly what they were doing or saying. He doesn't give us the details, but we find David again in trouble. And as I say, we find him again in a place that is familiar to him. He will offer us some hints along the way as to what was happening, but he doesn't tell us for sure. But yet we find him, again, as I say, where we're used to finding him, where we've been finding him in these psalms, in a familiar place, a place of trouble. But I want also just to point out that the place David is tonight here in Psalm 64 is not only familiar to him, but it's familiar to many of us as well. Now, you may read Psalm 64 and not feel like you're living in the midst of it just right off the top. You may not think too often about quote, the dread of the enemy, verse 1. You may not feel very often like you're in the kind of danger that David seems to have been in here. 
But as we'll see in a moment, the kind of danger that David was in and the kind of hassle he was facing and the kind of enemy he was dealing with are actually very similar to the kind of opposition that American Christians often receive today. And we'll see that under the first heading, that David's circumstances may sound unfamiliar to us, but they're actually more familiar than we may have first noticed when we read the psalm. So then, without further ado, let me give you that first heading, namely, um, man's arrows. We'll have three headings tonight. The first one uh, is man's arrows. Just notice we get this from verse 3. What kind of opposition was David facing? Well, he tells us there in the third verse that people had sharpened their tongues like a sword against him, and then he says they aimed bitter speech as their arrow, their arrow. And then in verse 4, he continues with that metaphor when he says they aimed their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. So David is facing arrows, he says, arrows from his enemies. Man's arrows is what I've called it. And we need to notice several things about the kind of arrows that man can shoot at us, the kind of arrows that men were shooting at David. Notice some things that David says about them. First, just notice that these arrows that David was dodging were verbal arrows. He tells us that also in verse 3, verbal arrows. Read the verse again. Who have sharpened their tongue like a sword, they aimed bitter speech as their arrow. So David here is not dealing with an onrushing army. He's not dealing with physical arrows that are being shot over the city walls or over the palace walls. He's not dealing with actual violence here, at least not yet. Here in Psalm 64, he's dealing with verbal arrows, verbal assault. His enemies have sharpened their tongue against him, and they have aimed the arrowheads of bitter speech against him, he says. And that's why I said that we may be able to identify with this psalm more than we first thought. Because these sorts of verbal arrows and not physical arrows are often the kinds of things that we face ourselves. Now, the New Testament teaches, doesn't it, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted, right? 2 Timothy 3.12. We know that when Paul says that, he's speaking the truth. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But sometimes we might read that verse and say, how can this be? Because Americans have it so easy. We have it so easy in this country as Christians. Our churches aren't burned down. Our pastors are never marked out by people for slaughter. None of our members are in prison for the sake of the gospel, at least none of these things yet. And so we may read a verse like 2 Timothy 3.12 and say to ourselves, how can this be fulfilled in us? We're not being persecuted at all. Well, the answer to that question may, on the one hand, be that we still have some growth and godliness to do, right? If we're not being persecuted at all, perhaps we're not living godly in Christ Jesus. But... On the other side of things, on the better side of things, it may be that we read 2 Timothy 3.12, we read that we should be persecuted, and we think that we're not because we overlook the fact that where we live in the world, persecution is usually mostly verbal. The arrows of persecution that come at us are mostly, in our culture, verbal arrows. In other words, if you are godly, I'm willing to bet that someone somewhere is talking bad about you. You may not know it, but they are. 
If you're being godly, someone is aiming verbal arrows at you, even if it's behind your back where you can't see. And some of you know that people are speaking poorly about you because of your faith. Maybe it's a relative or a friend that's more comfortable with the old you than they are with the new you. Because you know the old you is just like them. But the new you in Jesus brings conviction. Every time you're around, you don't have to say anything. Just be around them. They know you're serving God. They know they're not serving God. And they feel convicted about it. And so in order to salve their consciences, what do they do? They criticize you. If they catch you doing the slightest thing wrong, then immediately you're a hypocrite. And when you're doing right, then you're holier than thou. You're looking down your nose at them. You think you're better than them. Even though the gospel you've tried to share with them says the exact opposite. It actually tells them and you that you stink. But they don't listen to that. They just see your life. They see that it's different, and they feel convicted, and they're upset about it. Or maybe for you it's a coworker or a boss. And they can't stand the fact that you're honest because they think if you're completely honest the way the Bible says to be honest, you're going to cost the company money because, you know, the way to get ahead is to cheat, right? So people get really upset with workers who are honest. Now, they don't know that God says, those who honor me, I will honor. So they don't know that if you're honest, God's actually going to bless you in the business and that will spill over onto them as well. They just are upset because you're not doing what they're doing. Or maybe for you, the person who's aiming verbal arrows is an unbeliever that you're trying to share Jesus with. They don't like the message of repentance, or maybe they don't like the fact that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Maybe they don't like the fact that they cannot save themselves. But whatever it is, all of a sudden, for sharing Jesus with them, they resent you for it, as though this were your message and not God's message. This is usually the form that persecution takes in our culture. As in Psalm 64, man's arrows in our context are usually verbal arrows. And so I say we fit right in with where David is tonight. Doesn't feel good to be shot at, does it? But these verbal arrows, these criticisms that may come our way should be a comfort to us at least in a couple of ways. First of all, if people are talking bad about you for your faith, slandering you for your faith, you're not the first to suffer this way, are you? David... David suffered this way, and he got through, as we'll see in verse 10, and so can you. But a second comfort is that if you've ever worried that 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, if you've ever worried that that's not true of you, maybe you said to yourself, maybe I'm just not godly enough, just remember that scorn or verbal abuse or criticism or people talking behind their hands about you is a form of that persecution. And so man's arrows for us, as they were for David in this psalm, are often verbal arrows. But I also want you to see that in David's case, man's arrows were concealed arrows, hidden arrows. See this in verses 3, 4, and 5. Just read them again with me. He says, Who have sharpened their tongue like a sword, they aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment, at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? Do you see the, the secrecy there? People are talking behind their hands about David. David's enemies, in other words, don't have the intestinal fortitude to call a meeting with him or to set an appointment with him and to air their grievances against him to his face. They don't even have the decency to send him a letter outlining all their complaints. Instead, they're slandering him behind his back. They're shooting arrows at him from the bushes. 
where they can see him and shoot at him, but he can't see them. They're laying their snares secretly, he says in verse 5. So though David doesn't tell us exactly who and what and when this was happening, we get some idea. There was secret criticism, secret slander. And the first story in David's life that I think of is the story of his son, Absalom. You may remember David's son, Absalom, wanted the throne for himself, and so he would sit at the city gate of Jerusalem. And when anybody came from the out country with a court case to bring before the, th- the throne, Absalom would stop them and say, you know, if I were a king, you would be first in line for justice. But alas, this regime doesn't care anything about you little people. And in that way, the Bible says he stole the hearts of the people. Now, it was a lie. Not only was it a lie about David, but it was done in secret. Absalom didn't have the guts to criticize his father to his face, and so he did it, shot the arrows, as it were, from the bushes. And that's the way verbal arrows often come. They're shot from the bushes. When people slander you for your faith, it's often done behind your back. Sometimes people are angry enough, out of control enough, to just call you a hypocrite or a fanatic to your face, but often they say those kinds of things about you to other people. And sadly, sometimes we get wind of it second hand so and so you know thinks she's better than us now that she's gotten religion she hears the way she talks she thinks everybody's going to hell but she's just a hypocrite i saw the way she was being impatient with her kids the other day it's funny how serious people can be about our sins when our sins are decreasing you ever notice that when your sins abound people around you no big deal when you actually start getting rid of some of your sins then they want to magnify the ones that are left. But again, it's not a happy thing when people talk like this about us, and some of us have experienced it. But if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will talk like this about us, often behind our backs, as was the case with David. And it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. In fact, that's the next thing to say about these arrows. These concealed verbal arrows are also predictable arrows. We shouldn't be surprised if we enter into David's experience on a a couple of fronts or for a couple of reasons. First, if David could be slandered, a man after God's own heart, why shouldn't we be? Now, if we're not men and women after God's own heart, then lots of people who don't love the Lord will love us. But if we're like David, and more so if we're like Jesus, then we will have enemies, no matter how kind and conciliatory we may be. Isn't that what Jesus said? If the master, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, Matthew 10, how much more will they malign the members of his household, including David and including you and me? So I say we shouldn't be surprised when these arrows come our way. It happened to David. It happened to Jesus. It'll happen to us. Not only does the Bible, the history of the Bible teach us to expect verbal assault, verbal persecution, but secondly, David says here, so does human nature. Human nature teaches us to expect people to do this to us. That's David's argument there in verse 6. Why do people devise injustices against us? Why do they plot against us with their words? Why the verbal arrows? Well, because, as David says at the end of verse 6, the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. The inward thought and the heart of man are deep. That's David's explanation for the slander. And when he says the inward thought and the heart of man are deep, that's not a compliment. If you just read that out of context, you might think, boy, my thoughts are deep. 
and so are yours. The inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But it's not a compliment. He's not saying that our hearts and thoughts are deep like the ocean full of unfathomable riches and treasures and discoveries to be made. No, when David says the inward thoughts and the heart of man are deep, in this case he's saying that our hearts and our thoughts are deep like the hole beneath an outhouse. So that the further you go in, there's no telling what you may find. The biblical doctrine of total depravity is what he's describing here. When you go digging deep into man's heart, you find a lot more than you ever expected, and it's not good. It's not to say that every man or every woman is bad as he or she could be, but the biblical doctrine and what David is saying here is that there's no telling how degraded a person can be if they're left to themselves. There's no telling what we could find if we could just open up one of our hearts tonight and dig out everything that's in every little nook and cranny of our history and of our thought processes. That's what David is saying. And so he says, if that's what our hearts are like, then it's not surprising that siblings or friends or even children or parents could say horrible things to one another, especially if they're unbelievers, because the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. Now, we know that about our own hearts. Some of us who know the Lord know some of the yucky things, the terrible things that we think sometimes. And if that's true of us, then surely it's true of the people who would slander us. So man's arrows, he says, against us are often verbal arrows. They are concealed arrows. And these sorts of assaults should not surprise us, he said. They're actually quite predictable. Bible history teaches us that godly people will be slandered. Human nature tells us how easy it is for it to happen, verse 6. Verbal arrows, concealed arrows, predictable arrows. And one more thing about man's arrows. Briefly, man's arrows are often also satanic arrows. I don't draw this from Psalm 64, but from Ephesians 6, where we're told about the fiery darts of the evil one. I won't dwell long on Ephesians 6 because, Lord willing, we're going to come to it in a couple of months when we study Ephesians. But it will help us if we realize that when our families, our co-workers, our neighbors slander us for our faith, Satan may well be there helping them bend the bow. Now, knowing that doesn't make the arrows hurt any less, does it? But at least gives us some idea of how Sometimes people can be so vicious. Satan's chief goal in life is to destroy God's kingdom. And the chief way he's going to try to do that is by God's people. And sometimes he uses sticks and stones to break our bones. But more often than we probably realize, he uses words that we think would never hurt us, but which are actually like fiery arrows that can go straight into our souls, sometimes pulled by people closest to us. So man's arrows, that's the first thing. They're verbal, they're often concealed, they're predictable, but no less painful, and sometimes they're even aided on by satanic strength. But as sure as man has his arrows to shoot at the blameless in verses 3 through 6, God has his arrows as well in verses 7 through 9. That's the second thing, man's arrows. But then David speaks about God's arrows, What does our Heavenly Father do when people slander His children? What does He do when someone touches what He calls the apple of His eye? What does He do when people shoot arrows, verse 4, at the blameless? Well, David tells us in verse 7, God will shoot at them. God will shoot at them with an arrow. 
Suddenly they will be wounded, so they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake the head. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God and will consider what he has done. Now that's a poetic but startling turn of a phrase in verse 7. We need to notice it well. Yes, David says, man has his arrows to fire at the godly. But in verse 7, God has his arrows as well. A quiver full of them to aim at those who slander his people. That's a marvelous, poetic, shocking, terrifying juxtaposition of phrases there in verses 3 and 7. There are man's arrows, but then he says there are also God's arrows. God will defend his people. And I want you to just notice there that David tells us God has a larger goal in mind than just revenge. Vengeance is God's, but he has something more in mind than just revenge. Read verses 7 through 9 again with an eye towards why is it that God is bending his bow against his people's enemies. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded, so they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake the head. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God and will consider what he has done. Did you hear it? One reason why God bends his bow, one reason why God shoots his arrows at the enemies of his people is so that some people will see that and will sit up and take notice. Take notice of God's power. Take notice that God is not to be trifled with. Take notice that God loves his people. And as they sit up and take notice, he says some of these people will fear the Lord, verse 9, and they will want to be numbered with God's people with the people who are protected and loved like this God loves and protects and defends his people. God shoots his arrows, he says, through the hearts of his enemies for evangelistic purposes. Isn't that interesting that God's judgment upon one can actually bring about mercy upon another? And I want you to think about three ways that God works that, three ways that God shoots his arrows, or perhaps the best way to put it would be three kinds of arrows that God may shoot in verses 7 through 9. What kinds of arrows does God shoot? Well, first, the arrows he shoots may be temporal arrows. Temporal. In other words, God may, in the here and now, sometimes wound people, verse 7, or make them stumble, verse 8, on account of their treatment of God's people. Here and now. Do you believe that God would do such a thing? That God would cause physical punishment to come on someone for their treatment of his people it says it here but also we can think about the plagues upon the people of Egypt when they mistreated the Israelites we can think about the leprosy that clung to Miriam Moses sister when she criticized her brother we can think about Nabal that man who should have been helping David and his men when they were hiding in the wilderness and he actually spurned to help them And when he found out that God was against him, the Bible says his heart became like a stone, and within a few days he died. Or we can think about Absalom, David's son, who opposed God by opposing God's people, and he had not arrows but spears literally driven through his heart. The Bible teaches that God sometimes does pour out difficulty, disease, war, famine, and so on in this life upon those who mistreat his people. 
That's not always the way he operates. It's not even usually the way he operates, but God can and sometimes he does do Psalm 64, 7 in the here and now. And we need to take that, first of all, as a personal warning if we are tempted to slander God's people. And we also need to take that as confidence if we're the ones being slandered. Our God will defend us. He will avenge us. And we need to entertain these thoughts as possibilities when we see the downfall of certain people. That God may be bringing certain people down on account of the way that they've slandered his people or treated them despitefully. Now be careful, because we're never certain if God is doing Psalm 64-7 or if there's some other reason why somebody's suffering. We're never in on the the full wisdom of God on these things. And so we shouldn't go spouting off that we know that God is doing X, Y, or Z when someone's suffering. But we can just be quietly aware that if someone is a persecutor of God's people and they suffer a military defeat or get cancer or have heart disease or are in a car crash, that we can quietly say to ourselves, I don't know for sure, but that may have been my Heavenly Father defending the church, the apple of his eye. And we can pray that other people will get the message as well, a la verses 8 and 9, that other people will see and get the point and that they will fear the Lord. Remember, that's often a part of God's grand scheme of things. He shoots his arrows into one man's kneecap or blood cells or joints or whatever it may be so that other men and women will fear and will, verse 9, declare the work of God and will consider what he has done. Sometimes the one who begins to fear and to consider what God has done is the very guy who has the arrow sticking out of his kneecap. So God's arrows may be of a temporal kind, temporal judgment. But then verses 7 through 9 can also speak about final judgment, final arrows. Sometimes God may shoot his arrows here and now to judge those who slander and persecute his people. But if my observations of the word and of the world are correct. That's not usually how he does it. Usually, according to Psalm 73, the wicked seem to prosper. Let me just read to you a few verses from that psalm. Psalm 73, 3, David says, I was envious of the arrogant. Excuse me, Asaph says that. I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. That seems to be normally what we see with wicked people. I think you would say that from your own experience. It doesn't seem that God usually judges people here and now. But just because Psalm 73 may be true doesn't mean Psalm 64 is not true. Just because God doesn't usually judge the wicked here and now doesn't mean he's not going to judge them. Because even if God chooses to withhold his arrows now, there is a final day of reckoning, isn't there? God's arrows will be let loose in a torrent on that day when the earth and the sea will give up their dead and the great and small will rise from the graves and stand before the great white throne of judgment. The arrows will be flying like crazy on that day against all who have not believed in Jesus' name. And we can be, rest, we can be assured that the bowstring on God's arrows will be pulled extra taut for those who shot from concealment at the blameless, verse 4, for those who persecuted the apple of God's eye. God's bow in that last day will be bent as far as it can be bent 
against those people, and it will hit the target, David says, with deathly precision. And those who in this life had bulging eyes, Psalm 73, and were not in trouble as other men, those who in this life seem to escape God's judgment will in that day be wounded, and they will stumble, verse 8. And also in that day, verse 9 will come to fruition as well. All men will fear in that day, and they will declare the work of God and will consider what he's done. Sounds a lot like Philippians 2, doesn't it? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I just hope that you and I will be on the safe side of things on those days, that we'll fear the Lord now, that we'll consider what he's done now, that we'll bow the knee to Jesus now, because there are final arrows prepared for those who refuse to do so. So the arrows that God is shooting, temporal sometimes, final sometimes, but let me say thirdly that these arrows may be gospel arrows as well. Psalm 64 could very well be describing what I would call gospel arrows. There is a biblical record of sinners and persecutors who were pierced to the heart, not with arrows tipped with cancer or famine, not with the final arrows of God's judgment in hell, but with the kind of arrows that make people actually sit up and want to join with the people who declare the work of God and consider what he's done. There are arrows that pierce the heart, not to destroy it, but to change it. I'm speaking, of course, or using the language, of course, of Acts chapter 2. You remember there, Peter was preaching the gospel, pointing out the sins of the people, reminding them, warning them of God's judgment, uplifting Christ as the remedy for sin and sinners. And what do we read at the end of his sermon? Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what must we do to be saved? That's another example of God's arrows, this time the arrows of conviction, the arrows of the gospel. I'm not sure that that's what David had in mind when he wrote Psalm 64. But in God's mercy, that's sometimes how it works. Sometimes God sends temporal judgments. He always sends final judgments for those who don't repent. But in God's mercy, sometimes the arrows that pierce the heart of the unbeliever, the slanderer, are gospel arrows. The gospel can certainly do what Psalm 64, 7 and 8 describes, can it not? The gospel wounds people, verse 7, because it tells them of their sin. The gospel makes people stagger and stumble because it warns us of hell and judgment. But if the gospel is heard with faith, the very people who hear it, the very people who are wounded and staggering because of it in verses 7 through 8, will then look at their miserable condition and shake their head at themselves, verse 8b. And they'll begin to fear, verse 9, and consider what God has done. And when people consider what God has done in Christ when they consider that Jesus bore the full weight of our sins, that Jesus, if you will, took God's final arrows on behalf of all those who believe, then those who hear with faith embrace Jesus and they're saved. And the arrows, instead of destroying them, actually save them. You see what the gospel is? The gospel is an arrow that wounds and also heals. The gospel is an arrow that is tipped with the kindness of God, tipped with the blood of Jesus, tipped with the power of the Holy Spirit so that when it enters a man's heart, yes, it stings, it wounds, it causes that man to stumble and stagger, verse 8, and it must do those things 
Because no man is ever saved without repentance for sin, and no man ever repents without being staggered by conviction. God's gospel arrows must, by definition, wound us, but they wound us only so that they may heal us. God's arrows sting when they enter our hearts, but they are tipped with the blood of Jesus, and therefore they cleanse us from all sin and heal all of our wounds. So thank God that sometimes the arrows that God shoots at those who malign and slander his people are gospel arrows. He is unafraid and unashamed to shoot the other kind of arrows, but he far prefers to pierce men's heart with the arrows of conviction. As Ezekiel tells us, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So let me just ask you before we go to our last brief final point. Let me ask you, has God's gospel arrow pierced your heart? It's easy to read this psalm and to talk about all the people who sin against us and the arrows that God has reserved for them. But what about the arrows that are reserved for us? What about your sins? What about my sins? Just ask yourself, have I ever truly been pierced to the heart with this kind of arrow? An arrow that convicts me of my sin, wounds me, yet brings me to repentance. Do I know that my sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus? And if not, today as Paul says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day to allow God to wound you so that he may heal you in Jesus. So what have we said so far? We've spoken about man's arrows. We've spoken about God's arrows, including those that are tipped with the blood of Jesus. And finally, very briefly, I want you to notice David's arrows. David's arrows. Just notice that here in Psalm 64, While sinful man has his arrows to shoot at the ungodly, and while God has his arrows to shoot at sinful man and to shoot at him rightly and justly, David, the great warrior, has nothing on his bowstring at all. Do you notice that? The enemies have their arrows, verse 3. God has his arrows, verse 7. But David has nothing at all to shoot. David does not retaliate in this psalm toward his enemy. There's no angry... Wording, there are no vengeful actions. The only thing David is shooting in verses 1 and 2 and then in verse 10 are prayers and praises to his Father in heaven. That's the only thing that's leaving from David. In fact, when we read about David's life in the books of Samuel, this seems to have been David's modus operandi. David slew Goliath because Goliath insulted the Lord, not because he insulted David. David slew the Philistines and the other enemies of God in the name of the Lord, not in his own name. But David never seems to have been out for personal revenge. You remember Saul. If David ever had a reason to be vengeful, it was with Saul. Saul tried to kill David again and again and again when all David had done was show him kindness. And David had two opportunities, didn't he? Once when Saul was sleeping in the cave and once when Saul was asleep in the camp, both times David stood over Saul and could have plunged a spear through his heart and both times he said, I won't lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. Same thing with his son, Absalom, who rose up against him. David's army had to go out to war because they were being hard-pressed and attacked, but even as they did, David didn't have personal revenge in mind. He told his commander, deal gently with the boy, Absalom. And you remember Nabal, who insulted David, the king, and with whom at first David was quite angry and was ready 
to reap revenge, but he was stopped by a wise woman, Nabal's wife. And even then, he said, I'm so thankful that I didn't go out and seek revenge. I'm going to leave this in the Lord's hand. And there's a lesson to learn from David in this regard. In his life story in Samuel, in this psalm, we don't see David seeking revenge. When man's arrows are aimed at me, he seems to say, I'm going to remember that God's arrows are aimed at them. And therefore, I can keep my arrows in the quiver. I can keep my spiteful words. I can keep my vengeful actions to myself. David seems to have been doing what Paul is going to urge us to do in a couple of Sundays in Romans 12, 19. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when man aims his arrows at the believer in Jesus, and when our Heavenly Father aims his arrows back at those men, whether they be temporal arrows or final arrows or gospel arrows, the believer sits in the middle of the crossfire, aiming prayers at heaven, placing praises on his bowstring, verse 10, and sending those, but having no ill will and no arrows to shoot at his enemies. I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay either in that persecutor's own blood or I will repay mercifully with the blood of Jesus. But I will repay, says the Lord. Now here's a good question to ask yourself when someone sins against you. Here's a good way to tell if you are vengeful. Because oftentimes there's really vengeance in your heart, but you can't do anything about it. So you may think, well, I'm really not, I'm really not that angry after all. I'm not doing anything about it. But if you could... Maybe you would. Here's a question to ask yourself. How would I feel if instead of his arrows of judgment, God sank his gospel arrows into my enemy's heart? You think about the person who's done you so wrong, whether it's because you're a believer or just for some other reason. Think about the person that's done you so wrong and ask yourself, how would I feel if instead of shooting arrows of judgment at that person, God sank gospel arrows into his or her heart? Would I rejoice at God doing that or would I feel cheated? Do I have to have revenge and recompense? Or can I leave room for the wrath of God, even if God should choose to expend his wrath for my enemy's sins on the head of Jesus instead of on the head of my enemy? It's a good question. I think David could have answered it the right way. The man or woman who really trusts in God is not a wrangling person. They're not an angry person. They're not a vengeful person, even when they're sinned against. The person who trusts in God is a person who knows that his or her sins, the sins committed against him or her, will be avenged. God will either avenge them on the sinner or he has already avenged them on Jesus. And the person who trusts the Lord is satisfied with that. And because he's satisfied, he can say with David, the righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in him and all the upright in heart will glory. You might read that verse and think, well, David knows that God's going to judge his enemies and David's rejoicing in the downfall of his enemies. But that's not what it says. It does say God's going to judge my enemies, but then the righteous man will be glad in the death of his enemies. It's not what it says, is it? The righteous man will be glad in the Lord. The righteous man will glory in the Lord. Whether the Lord chooses to judge my enemies or whether he has judged Jesus on their behalf. 
all the upright in heart will glory.